Hi folks, welcome to Peak Curiosity. My name is Abigail Carlson. Today's episode features Brant Hansen from the Brant and Cherry Oddcast, or you might recognize him from the Christian radio stations throughout the U.S. Before we go to the episode, though, I want to mention all of the drama leading up to this release. We recorded the podcast two Saturdays ago. I saved it using Audacity. I made a copy to put on an external hard drive, but that screwed up the file so that I couldn't open it when I came back a few days later to edit. I read forum after forum, and I just could not find anything on how to fix it. In fact, everything said it was gone permanently, so obviously, seriously discouraged. I went to my sister's for the weekend, and voila, my brother-in-law was able to restore the audio. So here I am back in business with the new recording software. I mention it more in the episode, but Brant and Sherry have been hugely influential and beneficial, both in mine and my husband's lives, so it was such an honor to get to talk to Brant for 90 minutes. We talked about his job at Cure International, the American church consumer culture, masculinity, and finally, World War One and Two. Happy listening. Hello. Hey, there you are. Here I am. How are you? I'm doing good. And you? Good. Where do you live? I live in Payette, Idaho. It's a town of like 5,000 people. I've heard of it. Really? Why have I heard of that? Hmm. (sighs) Well, some people drown in the Payette River because there's rapids. That's probably it. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably drownings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's good to talk to you. You too. So let's start with the must-knows that people need to know if they don't know you to enjoy this conversation. (laughs) So um, do you want to list the things or do you want me to? (laughs) You can. I just love that idea of maybe when I have a conversation with somebody, I'll be like, here's my list of must-knows for you to enjoy the following conversation. (laughs) You must know. (laughs) I I like that a lot, actually. That'll be helpful. Maybe maybe I'll make it a T-shirt. Like, yeah. <laughs> to enjoy conversation with person. <laughs> no, you can go down the list. Okay. Or whatever. You, uh, yeah. Okay. So we have you have Asperger's syndrome. Yes. Yes. Um, you have what I have written down: shaking head disorder because I don't know the real name. It's called nystagmus. Nystagmus, and it basically is just that you're always shaking your head no. And f- right. If, unless I'm I'm able to control it if I'm not looking squarely at something. If I'm not so I can do okay on uh, on Zoom um, for the most part. Unless I'm trying to read something, then I'm in serious trouble. And then you'll see it's very dramatic. Gotcha. It's 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 like this normally. Really. So whenever I'm in public and I'm trying to read something or look at something, I'm just I'm doing this without thinking about it. So. Yeah. Um, so you have chronic depression. Um, chronic meaning over time. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And you've been married to your wife, Carolyn, for 30 ish years. 30. 30. Correct. Nice. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That must make you 50 ish. 50 ish. 50 ish. I'm 51. 51. And you have a couple kids. 
I do. And a boy, a man who is 27, and then a, a daughter who is 24. And they're awesome. Awesome. Well, that's pretty much it. Do you think anyone needs to know anything else? Um, well, I mean, obviously, my faith is a big part of my life. So people run into that pretty quickly when they get to know me. Sure. I'll use it as a stick to people people up but it's definitely my frames how i see the world is god's good and he matters um and i'm a i actually like sports even though i'm not a good athlete or anything i like sports and statistics so that's a that's a fun thing for me too yeah yeah cool and world war one <laughs> so so i thought i better start with this for you and for the listeners so hopefully it doesn't make me sound like a crazy person. <laughs> I have listened to you and Sherry since you first started on Air One. Whoa, yeah. Yeah, and I, pro I think I've listened to every single one of your podcast episodes. Awesome. <laughs> so again, I'm not a crazy person. It just means that right. it really is valuable to my life. And the craziest thing is that after learning about you and your having Asperger's, I thought it was such an interesting thing that exists. And I don't know. It's one of those, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it fate or whatever? But I ended up marrying a guy with Asperger's. Ah. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's like, he thinks that we were meant to be together. So it was like God saying, here, learn about this thing before you even meet him. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Or your exposure to my my stuff made you more amenable to his stuff. Yeah. Like you were okay with it because you interfaced with it. It's safe. And even there's some appeal to it because the honesty and mm -hmm. that stuff. And so that's really interesting. When did you guys get married? We got married four years ago. Yeah. So you and my wife could probably exchange <laughs> thoughts about being married to a guy on the spectrum. How do you think it's different? And maybe being married to somebody who's neurotypical. Well, I will say that he has a little bit smaller degree than you. I mean, he really can only focus on one thing at a time. Um, he doesn't like it if I give him like a string of information for the week. Like it needs to be pretty oh. broken down into like yes. this one thing. Okay, now you totally have that. Now we'll move on to the next one thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably yeah. the biggest thing is I'll tell him things on Monday about things that are coming up throughout the week. And by the time we're about to leave, he's like, wait, what? <laughs> that's so funny because not only does Carolyn have to deal with that, my wife, but Sherry, my producer, she'll she keeps a list and she doesn't want to over overwhelm me. But and I'm not doing this on purpose, but she can literally watch me start slumping in my chair and start slinking I, the more she goes on about it. and then this is coming up thursday and saturday is i'm, I'm not even i'm not even intentionally doing it but i just start to slowly just oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah so i get that yeah. i think those are probably the biggest things the other thing is that he's crazy about baseball statistics just crazy what? yes really yeah but it's it is baseball that's the biggest one, but it really yeah. is crazy about all all sports. Well, yeah. mostly like uh, football probably is the biggest one, college and pro. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, baseball gives you more data points, mm -hmm. so the statistics are richer. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's that's why for somebody who's a, a numbers person, baseball's so wonderful. We're not even interested in the aesthetics. Like, we don't have to go to a game or anything. I just want the stats. Yeah. But with basketball, you want to watch the game. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just give me a give me a sheet. But anyway, that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. So you do your show, your radio show, and um, you're syndicated. I don't know what that means, but usually people say it to make it sound like a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does it mean? It means that I'm really cool and that people should, I don't, I think genuflect is probably too much, but at least maybe a slight bow or curtsy when they, when they come into their presence and then don't turn your back on me when you go out the door, like back out mm -hmm. and then close the doors with both hands. You know what yeah. I mean? Make sure your hat so, is off at all times. Yeah. Yes. Look down. Do you want people to look at you or just look down at your feet? Um, if they ask permission, they can look toward me, <laughs> but that's anyway, I would say that. So there's that. And then also it means that, um, I've just done more than one station. I guess that's what it means. Mm. So what happens is Sherry and I do this show and we offer it to any radio station basically that wants it with market exclusivity, of course. <laughs> um, but if they want to show, if they want to air the show, they can, but they have to give cure time on their station. So I'll record some spots about cure. Mm. Good the stations don't actually pay me. Gotcha. There's not a single station that pays me to be on. Um, uh, but I, I use, I work for cure and I use everything I have for cure. That's my goal. So hmm. I don't make as much as I did before. I don't make, but I still make a good living. I make fine. I'm fine mm -hmm. by I, my standards. I'm doing great. Um, from being from a small town in Illinois, but, uh, Cure gets the benefit of getting all this exposure. I get the benefit of working with a mission that's, I think, very Jesus-centered that I resonate with for kids with disabilities. And then the stations get our content, which hopefully is a blessing to the listeners. Mm -hmm. So it's, and then they save money because they're not paying me. So it's a win, 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 win. As far as I can, as far as I know, it's been working out really, really well. Yeah. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Why don't yeah. you talk about Cure just a little bit? I You talk about it a lot, but I don't really know what your job is there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's I kind of that's the big a big chunk of it because it's so our show is so content based. Like we don't say, hey, that was 10th Avenue North and here's Toby Mac. Mm -hmm. So whenever I, we, our microphones are on, I want to say something. And so that takes a lot of preparation. I also can't say, hey, what's your favorite, you know, kind of pie? Let's do a phoner and everybody phone in. And then for the next half an hour, I'll talk about pie types because <laughs> that'll fill a lot of time. But it's like, so we don't do that. So I have to come up with things to say. So that, that's hours a day in prep. Yeah. Beyond that, for Cure, I'll travel to the hospitals. I'll write about it. I, I do drives on the air for Cure. So sometimes if you, if the podcast is off the air for a week, like you haven't seen a new podcast, a lot of times because like I'm doing a live event for Cure on some station to raise money, hmm. um, which I'm happy to do. So I'll also speak when I can. I, that's the thing I enjoy the most out of everything I do is live speaking. 
and I love talking about Cure live. So um, that's kind of what I do for Cure. And I always keep telling them, hey, if I've outlived my usefulness or whatever, just fire me. I'll keep giving and I'll keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. But it, it works. It's such a win-win because they've gotten so much exposure they couldn't have afforded. And then for me, again, I want, I want to talk about the kingdom of God in a way that's not just theoretical. And this is the most beautiful. So what Cure does, in case somebody's listening doesn't know, Cure is like this big secret because they haven't had a big PR person. Uh, but it's the largest provider of pediatric orthopedic surgeries in developing nations in the world. So kids in the U.S. that have an orthopedic condition, like club foot, for example, they get it fixed, lickety split, they're fine. But in another country, you can you can live with that the rest of your life and you're rejected from the culture. You're oftentimes abused by your own family. Mm -hmm. You're left behind entirely. You don't go to school. You're 16 years old and you're living on the street and on a piece of cardboard because you can't walk. Like it's that bad. You could have knock knees or bow legs or a spinal condition or, you know, burn contractures. And you're there's nothing you can do about it. You don't, there's no access to any any hospitals, any good surgeries. And if there is some sort of a hospital, they don't know what they're doing. And they wind up causing more damage than you went in with. You might break a bone. You're four years old. Break a bone. They don't know what they're doing. You're living with that the rest of your life. And you're considered cursed because you've got this deformed arm now or something. Mm. So we heal the kids. And we tell them they're not cursed. God loves them. And the parents who come in are shocked at the hospitality and the love that they receive instead of rejection. And we're very open about who Jesus is. So that's what I like, because I think, I think words are good. Words are powerful. And to just do something kind for somebody is wonderful. It really is. But just doing that and then not including the words to me is like, well, it's more beautiful if we can do both. And it just so happens that's what Jesus did. He's always proclaiming the kingdom and healing. Like there's both and like, tell me, use words. So we use words. We tell people the good news about a God who actually loves them and wants to heal and what his kingdom looks like. And then we heal their kids. Mm -hmm. So that's what cure is. There's just not that much. There's what baffled me was when I visited the hospitals at first. And I was like, how come the world doesn't know about these places? These are remarkable. Mm -hmm. They're so beautiful. If you ever go to one, you'll just be like, this is the sweetest place I've ever been on the planet because the, the moms are living there. They're on the beds with the kids. They, like they've come from 800 miles away. Like this is a dream come true that they're there, but they get to know each other. There's singing, praying for each other. People so happy. They're crying tears of joy, getting to know other moms who've gone through similar experiences or dads. The doctors are praying, leading worship. The surgeons are playing guitar and leading worship in the children's war. Like, it's just ridiculously awesome. Mm -hmm. And it's the best expression of Christ I've ever seen. So that's what it is. And I just didn't know why people didn't know about it. And they said, well, it's because we're busy. We're doctors. So I was like, hey, maybe I could, I could have a role in this. So that's mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah. And what I really like is there's lots of... Um, preachers and things that will go around preaching healing and they'll do things that are unconfirmable healings and they'll be doing it in a spiritual realm but this is so tangible you really see that for sure this is healing and it's not some weird like mystical 
thing. It is true, like surgery, we're using medical science to fix people. Yes. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the guys that's been a big influence on me is named Ben Worf. He, he teaches at, he's a professor at Harvard, but he's started one of the cure hospitals and he's been involved with cure for years. But so he, here's this Harvard neurosurgeon, teaches neurosurgery, but he says healing itself is a miracle. Whether it's used for surgery or not, the actual mechanics at the biological level are miraculous. I mean, God heals, we get to play a role in it. Um, and I think that's true. I think it's all mystical. So I, we've had people discount what we do. And I, when I've said, hey, you ought to give to this thing, you know, this is, we're putting Jesus' words into action. It's such a beautiful expression. They're like, yeah, but healing in the New Testament, it's, it's miraculous. Like you guys are using surgery and stuff. I'm like, how about this? How about if you give us money, that's a miracle. How about that? <laughs> yeah. That you would that you would care like the the end result is somebody's some little girl's walking and running and dancing and can wear pretty shoes for the first time mm -hmm. and her mom is crying tears of joy and it's because of your faith you gave money you didn't even know these people and you gave your own money for that to happen well from on their end I'll tell you what that's a miracle so all of it you're right here's the thing i wouldn't close the door theologically on mystical miracles obviously it happens in the new testament i think it still happens today i've never been a part of it i'll be honest like but i don't say it doesn't happen um i've had friends that say no i've, I've been you know it's happened that's awesome so i would never say god doesn't do that he does but this is another way that he heals and why the heck not i mean why the heck not so i'm so glad he's given us this way to do it yeah is there anything else you want to talk about that? Um, I'm getting a little frustrated about it. Uh, because, and this probably, I know it leaks out on the podcast, but the American church has spent so much money on entertainment. And that's fine, but, but I mean, like an attractional model of church, like let's put on this very expensive show, like it's Branson, Missouri, we've got all these theaters set up. And we spend, I think the figure I saw was 90 billion a year on staff administration and buildings. Really? Cure's budget is like 25 million a year. Like there are millions of kids that are waiting for surgeries like that around the world that have correctable disabilities. I'm like, how about, can, how about, can we slide one of those 90 billion over to do the work of healing? Because we don't have to like at a, at a cure hospital. We don't have to bribe people with cool bands and coffee to get them to come in the door. They will carry their children for 12 miles on their backs if they have to, or 50 miles. They will spend their life savings for a one-way bus ticket from 800 miles away. Mm -hmm. And they're lined up. We got a waiting list at one of our hospitals over 5,000 kids long. And it's just a matter of funding it. Mm -hmm. And I have become increasingly frustrated. I think this happens with people where it's like, and I got to talk you into 50 bucks or the churches, like most churches, if they are involved with cure, it's like, here's a $5,000 check from our budget of 10 million. And we appreciate the fight. We appreciate it. But it's like, what, what are we doing? Yeah. I mean, when, if, if people, 
We need to rethink what our money is going to as individuals, I think. And I, I think there's a lot of misteaching too about where money's supposed to go, um, what it's for, how much of it is God's. Uh, so I do have a little bit of an attitude. I'd like, I'd like, I hope that we reshape all of it, what, what we think church is and what we think the work of God is and what the work of the church is. And we fund the heck out of stuff like Cure. There's other missions too that are great, but I've never seen one that is so much like what Jesus told us to do in terms of it, like sent, sending out his followers to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. Like, so I got a little edge to it now and I'm trying not to be that guy, but it's probably becoming that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. There was a church that we, um, we were working in, Meridian, Idaho, which is a very, it's growing rapidly. We have a lot of people from California moving there yes, and they right. just built a church that I don't know, had to have been $15 million right in the mm -hmm. middle of Meridian. And I'm just thinking if I went there, I would be so mad about the money that I was giving to them. It's ridiculous. Every thing we do we we can justify so they'll be like well that's what we have to do i guess but we don't have one hospital worth 15 million dollars yeah. our hospitals will pale in compare but the amount of equipment and stuff that that would buy the surgeons that would buy i don't understand i mean and thousands of people will come to jesus the first year mm -hmm. at, at that hospital that we built with 15 million dollars so, and then they will go back to their villages with healed kids and people will say, who did this? Like, and we do this over and over. And here's the other thing. A lot of times when we're building these things, and I don't know this church, so I'll get ripped for talking about it. That's okay. Because people, people will generally agree in general, in theory with what we're saying. But when it comes to specifics, like, yeah, but we, okay, that's fine. Um, so I'll just, I'll just say we can agree to disagree if somebody has that position, but a lot of times they're just starting the same thing that exists five miles away or one mile away or literally across the street. Somebody else is also doing the same music, the same show, the same sermons, essentially the same programs, the same, and we're replicating it with a new franchise. We're franchising. Mm -hmm. And again, we're wait, we have a waiting list at one of the hospitals with over 5,000 families. We don't have to use all, it shouldn't be this expensive to disciple people. If our job is discipling, how expensive is that really? For me to disciple you or you to disciple me, what what are the what's what's the overhead? Not a lot. It's mostly time. It's, no, it's mostly time and me growing up and you growing up and um, us understanding what it means to follow Jesus in our daily lives and apply his brilliant uh, insights into our lives like and the power that he gives us. And uh, that's not that expensive. You can do that with a, with a overhead around $0. So I would like to see us think about that um, rather than making this a massive industry. So whatever, I mean, I don't mean whatever. I said, whatever to take the, it's kind of like just saying. Yep. 
and I don't want to say just saying. I'll own I'll own everything I just said. How about that? <laughs> so when it comes to your show, you have like twenty minutes a day of the most random content that could be imagined. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I just simply cannot understand is how uh-huh. you decide when you're gonna be silly with something and when you're gonna take it to the nth degree of seriousness. Because the first half of the sentence, I have no idea what it's gonna be. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Good. Well, that's just well, the big advantage there is having Asperger's, I swear. Like that's the big advantage. Like, I bet your husband can be that yeah. way too. Here he is. He wants to come say hi. Oh, good. Here, put on the headphones so you can hear. Okay. Uh, hi. Hey man, how you doing? <laughs> Not too bad. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you too. Tell me your first name. I'm Jordan. Jordan, man, congratulations on four years of marriage, I understand. <laughs> yep. That's fantastic. Man, it's so great to talk to your wife, too, man. She's brilliant. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. <laughs> I think if you guys are ever in Florida, we should hang out. That would be awesome. We'll... It would. Yeah. I think I think it would be super fun. She said you're into baseball statistics, too. Yes, that's that's my thing. <laughs> You like like advanced analytics, like the war and OPS plus. And yeah, all that stuff. that's that's what I've been really getting into. But I mean, growing up, that was less of a thing, and so I was more traditional. But that's kind of as that's come along, I've definitely gotten more into that. <laughs> yes, me too. Although when I was growing up in the '80s, I, Bill James was a guy who did uh, the baseball abstract, oh. but he did all this analytical stuff. That he, he was kind of the, the guy who started sabermetrics. It's what it's called. So. I started getting into it as a kid, but it was nothing like it is today. But everybody like caught and passed me is what happened. Right. <laughs> nice. So good. Well, it's great to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. Thanks, Jordan. Okay. See ya. See ya. Have a good morning. Yep. Well, there he is. He's awesome. Yep. Yep. I agree. Anywho, so you think that the Asperger's really helps you with the joke being a surprise (laughs) i think so i guess i mean i don't all i know is like when i listened to the radio when i grew up i didn't want to hear i just want to hear like i'm on the radio now (laughs) and i still listen i'll hear like on these team shows there's a whole bunch of people and everybody's laughing and you're so this and that crazy and i just that's just not my thing so it apparently works um but what i wanted to hear was people being themselves as much as possible and so that's just an outworking of that like that's how we talk off the air is it's strange and random and it can be serious one second and then it's a big joke. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, Sherry is totally, Sherry obviously doesn't have Asperger's, but she's, everything is on the edge of a big joke for us. So uh, there are things that we both take very seriously about our faith or whatever, but there's, there's, there's a laugh that's always about a millimeter deep about to happen because everything to us is funny. And I think part of that isn't just the Asperger's, it's when you grow up with some pain in your life, you start to develop a more uh, absurd, ironic sense of humor because that's how you had to deal with everything. Yeah. You had to be a joke. Like, if this isn't a joke, then I don't know how to process this. So 
you, you get that way, I think, as you grow up with some stuff. Yeah. It really cracks me up how you'll start with something really serious and and then the joke happens and Sherry goes, I just need you to know <laughs> that I don't blame you for leading me on. I blame myself <laughs> for jumping in. <laughs> That's right. What I love about that, too, is, is we intentionally, we say this, like we intentionally, she does not know what I'm going to do. She de- We don't map it out. Mm-hmm. Y- y'all say this, you say that. Now, radio coaches will tell you that's what you're supposed to do. Like plan out your breaks ahead of time and then you and then uh, you know what your role is and then this and that. Well, that to me takes the fun out of it. And it also sounds creepy. <laughs> it's so fake. I despise it. I, yeah, I just, I just, you can say that as a consumer, as a, as a practitioner with friends in the industry that I love, I'm, I, I, I just encourage them when I get a chance and we have some influence in the industry too. That's been a neat thing to see. Like I never really expected that. Like people actually come to our show and ask us for help. Um, because there's a lot of people in Christian radio that actually listen to our show, believe it or not. And um, that's never something that I thought would really happen, but it's worked out that way. But we try to encourage them too. Like you can't set stuff up. And the, the brilliant thing about Sherry, obviously she's so smart. She's right there with me. And, uh, and she knows where to occupy on a stage because she's so adept at you know playwriting and acting. And so not, none of it's fake, but you know, she could easily run the show herself, but instead she plays, uh, she takes a step back and I'll take a step back for her. And that's, that's a big part of it. Yeah. But what I was going to say about that is like, if she had a big ego or if I had a big ego, as far as being on the air goes, like you wind up at odds with each other, like trying to get the spotlight. And that's what a lot of shows do where they're all vying for some sort of something and you can feel it after a while it just feels weird and so we don't we don't have that problem thankfully (laughs) yeah um one of the segments that you do that cracks me up is your social tip segment where Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's masked as if you need if you need help starting a conversation but what it really is i just learned a cool fact that i want to tell you That's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what yeah. it is. And I really like it. And I've always thought, like, you know, if somebody started a conversation with me like that, I would jump in. I'd be like, "Yeah, this is a cool fact. Let's talk about it." Except for the one time, I think you you started with just, um, "Did you know that the human eyeball weighs one ounce?" And That was not even hello. It's just she has to come up to me and say hello, and I'll interrupt her. Yeah. The human eyeball weighs one ounce. Yeah, yeah. that was the only yeah. time I was with Sherry where I was like, "Nah, don't say that." I think I did one where it's like, you know, if I took every nerve out of your body end to end, it would stretch from the Earth into like to Saturn or whatever. Yeah, and um, yeah, it really is that. All that is is me finding something interesting. And then wanting to talk about it on the air and then putting it in the guise of this is some sort of a, this has some sort of benefit. <laughs> <laughs> so when I found, I heard, um, oh, it was, 
like some special effects on YouTube. They have like some sound effects. And there was one for like the clickety click of, of your uh, seatbelt on an airplane. Mm -hmm. And then the bing, you know, sound in the airplane. And when I heard that, I was like, that'll be great. We can do some like role playing on an airplane where I can start <laughs> up a conversation. So that's literally, it was like, I want to use that sound effect. And uh, that's the entire point of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, you can tell Sherry that if you started a conversation with, to me with, with that, that I would be in. So, yeah, I will. I will say that I'll say Abigail was in and um, there are a lot of people too that love breaking animal news when I do that. So that's fun too. Cause Sherry does not, she's not interested in animals at all. She's yeah. not, that's totally genuine. She hates birds and then other animals are just, so for me to just go on about ferrets or whatever, that's, that's, uh, that's a nice space for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, should we talk about your books a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So you've written three books with your fourth one on the way, right? Yeah. I just yep. I just sent the manuscript for my fourth one. It's finally written. Yeah. It'll have to get edited and stuff, and that'll be good. But I think I'm done with it for the most part. Yeah. And it's about masculinity. Yes. It's called The Men We Need. That's our working title. Hmm. But I thought we were past the age of masculinity. Yeah, well, apparently we are. So that's why we need the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I know that's going to, I know it's such a hot button issue. And when I'm writing, I honestly am writing so intentionally about trying to be a, a blessing to guys. I just want to skip the cultural debate. Mm -hmm. I just want to skip it because I just want to, I don't want, like you can read 8 billion books about the cultural debate about gender and sexuality and all of that stuff and all the new developments we've discovered in our, in our minds about this. Um, but I'm like, look, I think men and women are different. Um, I think I'd like to skip over the rest of it. And if that infuriates you, then you can skip this too. I understand. God bless you on your merry way. Like, but um, we're made to be co-rulers, like of we're given dominion, men and women, to be stewards over uh, over what God has entrusted us with, and one is not better than the other, or or one is not superior in any way to the other, but men are given a particular role. Adam was given a particular role and he failed and he eaten and to us to an extent that men fulfill that role as keeper of the garden. Um, it just so happens that we are energized by that role. There's something about it that clicks with every man that I've ever met and women, unless there's some sort of a, you know, a, an ideological, issue women tend to recognize that that is a very great place for a man to be to use his strength or whatever he's given to protect the vulnerable and to protect women and it's a betrayal of men's strength to make women uncomfortable or make make kids uncomfortable um or threatened so mm -hmm. you know that, that's 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 the thesis of the book but it, i spent a lot of time just trying to impart whatever wisdom i can give 
And I, I think the advantage for me is that I'm not a manly man. So I'm not writing it from a standpoint of you guys need to be out there, you know, doing more manly stuff. Like that's, that's not me. I don't have a, tr- I used to have a truck. It was cool for a while, but um, <laughs> I uh, wasn't cool enough for it. I have a mini, I have a mini Cooper. That's what I Ooh. have. Um, and I don't, I don't hunt or fish and I don't even grill very well. So I'm writing as somebody that maybe can relate to guys that are, that are nerdier or tech guys or, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. What is so interesting to me is we have this ideological thing of like men and women are equal in this toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. stuff. But if Mm -hmm. you just sit and watch a movie, superhero movies, um, my favorite example is The Quiet Place. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Uh, John Krasinski Mm -hmm. movie. Yeah, I'd like to. I haven't seen it. I would recommend it. But what strikes me is that Specifically in that movie, I noticed he is the ultimate man. Like, he is doing everything in his power to protect his wife and kids and to Mm. heal his daughter who is deaf. And Mm. he ends up dying in the end to save them. And we have this ideology that we want men to be less men. But all of our movies and entertainment Mm. reflect what we most love about men. And I don't understand why people do not see this conflict. Well, there's a whole lot of conflicts and a whole lot of dissonance going on. Um, But I think that's a great observation. I should probably watch that movie. And when I do another go around with the book, like with the editing, talk about that. Another movie that jumped out to me that's classic from years ago was Signs with Mel Gibson. Mm -hmm. It's uh, M. Night Shyamalan or however you say his name, like, did you see that? I never chance? did. I was too young when it came out. Yeah. You could watch it now. It's it's actually not gory or anything. Um, it's tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a it's a classic example of a man doing whatever it takes to defend his kids. Whatever it takes to keep them out, to literally keep out whatever's coming after. Something's coming after him, and I will board up the windows if I have to. You are not touching my family i have been through this like that's there's so many examples of that you're exactly right and um we recognize it that was what i was saying i even i even make a point from the very outset of the book saying if you embody what we're talking about here so this john krasinski role in in a quiet place or the or the or the gibson role in signs or (laughs) a billion other movies if you, if you embody that role, women will find you more attractive. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you'll be like women will follow you around like an Axe body you know, spray <laughs> commercial. But you will be more attractive than you were. Mm-hmm. That is a fact. And it's not the point isn't read this book so that you'll be attractive to women. But the point is w- women instinctively know they instinctively know when we're at our best, like they draw it out of us. In fact, that's what a, a real woman will do to a, to a real man is you will draw out your husband to be more than he was going to be. So I'm not saying a guy has to get married, but he has to be in relationships with people and around, around real women, not fake ones, because they will, the fake women will never call you out 
to become the man that you were supposed to be. They will give you the, the, the fake thrill of whatever fantasy is in your head, but they'll never wake you up at 2 a.m. to say, I need to talk to you about something, which, oh, that's so annoying. Oh yeah, fine, but maybe you need to talk about that. Like, or all the my myriad other things that's part of life together that a real woman is gonna call you out to grow up, to stop playing video games at, at one o'clock when you're tired. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. To have a real person call you out on that stuff is very valuable. And it's, I'm, I'm trying to get that across. Like, this is, this is why women recognize this. They know it. This is why when a man does something to defend the vulnerable in the news, it's, it's, it goes viral. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful and profound and women are swooning. They don't even, the guy doesn't have to be good looking. They don't, it isn't. They're swooning. It's true. Little boy defends his sister, gets attacked by a dog, messes up his face, you know, Bridger in uh, Montana or wherever that was. Like uh, that goes viral a million times over. Mm -hmm. And it's a boy saying, I thought if somebody should die, it shouldn't be her, it should be me. Like he's six years old. And everybody's like, you're the biggest hero. The Avengers got on Zoom and they recognize. How do you do that? Like you're saying, the implicit contradiction in our culture. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you recognize how great that is as heroism? Mm -hmm. But we instinctively do. So it's a great point. I'm actually going to write that down because I'll, I'll have a chance to update my book a little bit before it gets published. <laughs> cool. I'll put that in there yeah. and then I'll be like, thank you, Abigail. Sweet. You know, it is crazy how attractive it does make a guy because Jim Krasinski is really not that good looking. If you just look at his face, there would be nothing about him. But I was thinking as I'm watching that movie, wait, can I marry this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's a great point. Um, the role is everything, isn't mm -hmm. it? So if John Krasinski is on, you called him Jim, which is understandable. I did. Whoops. <laughs> yes. But think of his role on the office. Yeah. He's Jim. Anyway, like um, if the role is the guy's a snake who walks out on his family and he's a he's a layabout, like he just doesn't do anything. Doesn't defend his family, doesn't care, threatens his family, spends all his time entertaining himself. That guy's not attractive. Like He's a good-looking guy, I imagine, on average. He's better than that. It would be my guess. Um, but, like, he could easily be highly unattractive to women given that role. Mm -hmm. I know this is true. I just I know that's what happens to women that are married to a good-looking guy who becomes a snake. Like, he's not – they wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pull and went out of there. He's disgusting. So, it's all about the role. Um, maybe that's a good segue into the next subject. So you're super into World War One, and Holy. I know almost nothing about World War One because it's so oh. overshadowed by World War Two. Yes. Oh, that burns me. <laughs> so, two things. Why? What was the purpose of World War One? You know, World War Two had a really clear objective purpose, but I look at World War One and it. It is so mysterious to me. And can you please explain it to me like I'm seven? Oh, boy, like you're seven. Well, there was this family and they were all spread out all over Europe and they didn't get along. 
that would be that would be one way to yeah. cover it up recover it um which is really true but some of it was just petty jealousy so the kaiser in germany um wilhelm was the grandson of victoria the queen of england and she's got all these kids this whole family they're all related all the way across europe um and they would even and even into russia like the the czars like they're all part of this extended network of family and they would get together in england for boat races and whatnot he was in southampton they would there's pictures of gatherings uh when i'm trying to remember it was a king edward that died or they had his funeral i'm trying to remember i'm sorry but um a lot of them came back for the funeral it was a picture of all these potentates you know together uh but what was going on at the time which is i think a lot of people give short shrift to was a lot of these european nations were building trade networks and colonies around the world at this time and germany had the biggest population in europe was very proud of itself and was growing like crazy but they didn't have any of that going on if you look at a map of the world like you don't see a bunch of german outposts you don't see a bunch of german so they i think he was feeling a little shorted he also admired the british navy so much it was an obsession with him the guy dressed up like a british admiral like he, he wore british clothes around like mm. naval officer clothes around his palace it was very strange but he envied that so much so he started building a giant navy well if you look at a map germany's just got a little bit of coastline there on the north um emptying into the north sea if they're going to project around the world they've got to get around the world's largest naval superpower that's england well that's their friend but the only way that they basically they had to have a fight they felt they felt impinged on both sides france and russia then struck an agreement to be an alliance so they're like okay so we're stuck in the middle we can't go anywhere with our navy we don't have any colonies you guys are doing all this other stuff i'm jealous you know the navy it's it was literally that silly in some ways now there's a whole lot of other dynamics in the balkans and whatnot but that that's what it comes down to they literally felt like they were being ganged up on and so they thought hey let's attack everybody so uh they had it dialed in though they knew how to pull this off they were going to do a, a a war against france sweep in have no problem taking over france and then they were going to be able to defend against russia and they had it too that because they're german they, they got it down timed like we know how long how long it's going to take to do this we'll move here it'll take this long and it's all time but what they didn't anticipate was when they invaded france instead of just going through the middle there in Alsace-Lorraine they decided they were going to uh go through belgium and they thought the belgians would just roll over and they didn't so that delayed that whole operation hmm. and then things got dug in because they didn't know how else to defend themselves they dug holes in the ground to defend themselves and so the french did as well the british got involved uh the russians attacked um and everybody just hug, dug holes in the ground and there they stayed and they didn't know what to do about it nobody could give up because you've lost so many men you lost so many people it's such a disaster well who gives in first well we're not giving in but how do we get across you can't invade we've tried it over and over and over we're going to send you know 10,000 guys over this afternoon and they all get machine gunned they're all dead well now what 
oh, let's try it again. 10,000 guys over, they're all machine guns. They did it over and over and over. So that's the story of World War I. Eventually, one of the big things that helps break the war is they thought, well, what if we had like some kind of vehicle and we put up steel plates around it so that we could drive it across no man's land? Hmm. And these were horrible, stupid looking vehicles, but they basically what they did was they designed a tank mm -hmm. and it started to work. And that's where we got tanks. Hmm. And also one other big factor was, well, if we can't get across no man's land, what if we, when we shoot a shell over there, we have this poison gas, like the gas can go into there. So poison gas became a big thing. And that that's uh, an, uh, an offensive weapon that's, that's difficult to defend against. So anyway, that's what happened. Um, there wasn't much point to it. And the fact that there was no point to it, that millions of people died, millions of civilians, millions of, of people, R Russia never recovered the, the loss of men. Germany had people starving to death. Um, France didn't recover for generations, you know, like the, the amount of people they lost. Entire villages in England would get a note because they all would fight together. They'd get a note from the front line saying, basically, everybody's dead. Your entire, all your neighbors and your sons and your boyfriends, they're all, they're all dead today. We want, we need you to know, like they all die at once. It was so catam cataclysmic that people just reevaluated everything philosophically and the world has never been the same. And World War II was just an extension of that war. I mean, that was Hitler fought in it. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the leaders of World War II, they fought in that, but Hitler was incensed about how Germany gave in. Um, he thought it was a, a Jewish conspiracy among other things. He blamed all these people and then used that animosity about how that war ended to just keep it going and attack the world again. So it's all the same war, just with a, a, a break. And, um, but the philosophies that gained hold have not let go since then. And, and we are still walking around shell-shocked from World War I. People don't even know it because ideologically, they don't know where these ideas come from that, that gained ground in the 20s and then exploded through the 50s and then into the 60s, they really exploded. And we're still dealing with it. So deconstructionism, a lot of the, a lot of the, it's all from that. This is the most long, boring possible answer, but no one ever asks me. So that's what happens. Well, I'm, happens. I don't know why people don't ask. I think it's interesting, but I've tried to read books about it, but what I need is kind of what you just did where you have a 30,000 mm -hmm. foot view so that I can understand the pieces but I'll get into a book and it's just talking specifically about these characters and I don't know where their place in history is. And it's yes. so confusing. Yeah, it is confusing. And the, the 30,000 foot does help. And then there's the little stories about how it actually got started. You might remember Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in the Balkans, but that story itself is amazing. He's got these Serbian separationists basically that wanted to assassinate him. Gavrilo Prinkip is the guy. He's kind of a bumbling guy. He gets a gun. He knows where this parade's going on. Misses. Misses. And then goes to get a sandwich later on. And it just so happens that that car with the Archduke drives by that sandwich shop. Really? 
and parks right next to it and leaves him wide open to try again. Wow. And he looks up from his sandwich and he's like, what? And then he shot and killed him. And that's how that triggered a series of events and alignments and whatnot that dra dragged other people into the war. But that, that just lit this whole thing that was already existing. Probably would have had a war anyway, but that if you're like every, every one of these micro stories is like, are you kidding me? That's so insane. millions of people. Yeah. And all these individual lives, people don't, to go through something like that, you never recover as an, even as a civilian, you never recover for that. everything. The rest of your life is related back to that. So that's, that had a profound effect on religion and philosophy and ideas and ideas have consequences, but that whole thing is so interesting. I recommend reading, um, all quiet on the Western front. I have read that's that. Sort of a, that's phenomenal. Okay good. okay. good. Yeah. So that's kind of a micro view. The macro, there's a whole lot of great books. The Guns of August is probably the best uh, that I've read, but there's there's a lot of other ones that are tremendous. Okay, I'm writing it down. Okay. Did you watch 1917? Yes. Yeah, did you like it? I did. Um, obviously, that's it's kind of a one-trick idea to do the one long shot, but I thought that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I thought a couple of the scenes were just hauntingly good. Um, so it, it sacrificed some story, obviously, because of the, the the mechanism that it used. But I loved it. Did you like it? I did. I thought it was interesting because I feel like um, that's probably not a good way to start, but you hear a lot that World War One and World War Two were like the worst wars. Mm -hmm. And I'd always kind of thought, well, maybe that's just an exaggeration. Maybe they're counting in the civilian deaths to make it the worst wars. Because war is still war. You'd think it'd be pretty horrible no matter what. But watching the movie, I really thought, wow, maybe it is the worst. I think it is. Um and you're right, but if you do a history of war, most of the time, like through human history, there was a certain understanding of what it was and how it was fought um, in, in various cultures, not just Europe, but I'm, I'm more familiar with the Western way of war. And it used to be these guys would get together at this time on this plane to fight it out. Uh, the idea that we would go to total war where you would be like Japan going, see, we don't even think about Japan going into China and what they did in China. It was horrible. Like, it was unbelievable that just millions of people. So, the, but the firebombing that the allies did over Dresden or over these other German cities, where it's just like, we, we have no choice. I understand the rationale, but that's not normal in human history. Setting a whole city to melting fire and everyone in it and everything in it and all of it gone with so much tonnage of, of TNT that you've, that's exceptional. Uh, now, that is the way that war is now. There's no doubt about it, but like that's, in human history, that was not necessarily a given. Now, yeah, so yeah, I would, I'd have to say just in terms of the number of casualties around the world plus just the totality of how it was fought i don't know how you would rival that yeah it makes me sad um when i was watching 1917 when um 
when he'd finally gotten, I can't even remember what, where he was traveling to, but when he was in that ruined city, it just made me sad yeah. that there are these buildings that have been there for 500 years and, yeah. and it's just gone. Yes. That, that pains me too. I've been to some sites, even in, there's one in Africa, Northern mm-hmm. Ethiopia called Gondor, which is cool. Um, but it's a, it's these old castles and things and they're all crumbling. They're beautiful, amazing, mm-hmm. but it's all the ruins of this and that. And I'm like, why, what happened? Like, well, we bombed it in World War II. Mm-hmm. The allies bombed it because um, the Italians and, and Mussolini had taken, had used this as a headquarters and like, man, but that's the case. I, I brought up Dresden, for instance, that was one of the most artistic cities. All of that's gone. Like, all of it, museums, architecture. There's a, there's a lot of cities in Europe that are just not what they were. And it, it, like, because of that, there's, they were just gone, just destroyed. So yeah, I thought, that, I thought that scene was probably the most haunting part. And I, again, the fact that you've got people living among that fire, yeah. living in that fire and trying to make it work with a baby. What are you gonna do? You're just catatonic. Yeah. You don't get over that. Like that's, that becomes defining. And everything gets up for grabs after that. Like you've heard about God, he loves us. And then you're in that and your whole family's gone. Like how, how do you process that? So yeah, man, that's, that's a great scene. It also makes me go into a crisis about American culture and how just throwaway we are with everything. And the Mm. houses that we live in, they're fine and they're cheap. They go up quickly, but I mean, they won't be here in 400 years. No. <laughs> and those ones, they would be there indefinitely as long as there isn't a bomb or a 10.0 earthquake or something just crazy. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and we live in a house that's, I think it's 15 years old. We're in a townhouse mm-hmm. here. Um, it's like 15 years old. I feel like cool I'm in a new house and it's there's all sorts of stuff falling Mm -hmm. apart like the pipes the roof it needs to be replaced like everything's got a you're like we have a sprinkler system outside in our neighborhood it's all falling apart 15 years um so I think that's true uh I we like we like our stuff man I mean we and I'm, I'm that way too we just like quantity of stuff and live in pretty large and that's what we've chosen I've been a part of that. I have to say, like, I use a lot more than I need to. Every time I go to the local landfill, I go into a full existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's it's tricky because it's very easy to get elitist about that kind of thing. Like, the dream was right that everybody would be able to buy stuff, mm-hmm. not just the rich people could have a meal prepared by other people. But, the, but even the poor could have a meal prepared by his servants. Like, that's what we have. So we've got all of that stuff. Like, boy, it'd be nice if poor people could own a car or own a bike or a TV. Or a, So if they get seven TVs and they throw six out over time, like, well, that's, that's because we've been so successful in some ways. Like, and we want people to be able to have things, toys, 
like but they're not so expensive they're made out of plastic they're not made that great but they like want kids to have toys right so mm-hmm. there's a flip side to all that stuff where same thing with the houses yeah like that's a dream for everybody to have their own property their own house well okay then we have suburbs like that's that's a, and then people make fun of the suburbs like you shouldn't be there and they're like well, but that was our dream like poor people poor people have moved up to the point where they can get something for themselves that's beautiful that's or with a with their own grass and their own fence like that's kind of awesome mm-hmm. so there's a flip side to all of that I, I i do agree with you but i i get i get the flip side to it too If you could live at any time in history, what would you choose? You cannot choose 20th century or 21st. Oh, gosh. I want all of them. I want all the years. I want all. I mean, it's a trick question. If I could bring antibiotics with me, I would go lots of places. Oh, the places I would go. Um, I'm really fascinated right now by the early Middle Ages. And what I'm talking about is the Romans mm-hmm. are devolving, basically. They're exiting Spain and France and uh, possibly because I'm, you know, my, from European descent, um, I know more about Europe. And um, the time after the Romans in England would probably be what I'd pick. So we're talking like St. Patrick era stuff. We're talking yeah. 5th century, 6th century king arthur legend era so what is it that you'd want to see there i want to see the mix of people that become the british or the english like over time it's angles and saxons and whatnot but there's but they're post-roman and it's it's up for grabs who are these people like um how do they become christian like what all of that i just think it'd be so cool to be in that in that setting well what about you what would you pick well i really like ancient rome but Mm -hmm. i feel like i would rather be a man in ancient rome because women did not always have it great and it was Hmm. the joke you know that guy actually likes his wife what a loser (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) so but i want to see just the the power that the romans had at the height of their of their yeah, empire. I get it. Uh, I would like that too. It, it's fascinating what they were able to accomplish. It's unbelievable. The level of organization. And there's a classic Monty Python scene. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. What have the Romans done for us? Have you seen that? No, I tried watching what's his the the Holy Grail. I couldn't yeah. do it. I watched okay, like 10 well, minutes after the clickety clack of the coconuts. <laughs> that was the funny part. And then after that, I just thought this isn't that give great. It, give it time. You're going to grow into this, Abigail. Okay. I promise. There's a scene they do, and I don't recommend this movie for everybody. I, I thought it was brilliant, but that's me. Life of Brian. <laughs> and it's set in the time of Jesus. So these people are in Palestine and they're planning a a revolution against the Romans. And they're like, what have the Romans done for us? And the guy who's leading him, John Cleese, like, you know, what have they done for us? Trying to get everybody whipped into a frenzy. There's somebody in the back of the room. He's part of the revolutionary group. He's like, well, the roads, they give us the roads. Like, okay, but besides the roads, 
What name one thing the Romans have medicine? Okay, besides the roads and medicine, we know about those two things. But what else are they? the aqueducts? Okay, but besides the roads, medicine, the aqueducts. Well, they gave us a, a consistent government throughout the. Yeah. Okay, besides the consistent government, the rule of law, the aqueducts, the roads, and medicine. Like sewers, they don't all the things. This. Yeah. <laughs> It just goes on yeah. and on, and uh, it's pretty funny. Like that is a that is a remarkable organization. That's the that's the funny thing about the Romans. Like they're able to hierarchize everything into a, a and then to accommodate all these other kingdoms and and races and peoples within that, and let them kind of do their thing. But Rome was going to be in charge. Like that was there's a lot of genius in that some evil genius but a lot of genius in that yeah every once in a while i uh i think about our humans getting better as humans like we're less barbaric but we're still just as bad and um i was watching it was from a doctor's perspective a video on what happened in the crucifixion and how smart yeah. the romans were yes and i like um, the, it would put the nails right through the nerve in the hand so that it wouldn't cause any bleeding and it would actually help support some of your weight. Wow. It, but it would also cause like the most pain. And mm. it's just crazy how they were really smart, but so just like we don't care about you whatsoever. Yeah. And um, anyway, that that really made me think maybe humans are getting better. And then I immediately watch 1917 and i'm like no humans are not getting better yeah I, don't, I would say we're not although in western culture for instance just to again because that's where we are um it, see the romans believed in they were an honor culture which still exists in parts of the world where it's like strength and honor is what matters not the weak why would we why would we celebrate the weak like we're about getting better as people stronger faster you know smarter we went to survival of the fittest like this is who we are if somebody's got a got a disability or something then they were they were given it they were considered monsters in many cases mm -hmm. or, or drowned like to the victors go to the spoils like this is who we are so that's an honor culture in that sense um the christian idea is that no the weak matter and it's about like we should view people in a more egalitarian sense and we shouldn't do that sort of, that's a, that's a Jesus thing. And then along comes like, um, like German philosophers that are saying, why did we pick the weak thing in Western culture? Like everybody's about the weak thing now. We all take that. So we're all, so we're breathing that in. Like we're not so bad anymore because we're, we still are running on the fumes of this, not, not that we're, we're more for the underdog. We like the weak and we want to lift up the oppressed and we want to, you know, all that. Well, that's, that's Jesus ethos, but from a secular perspective, why is that superior? So you've got, yes, yeah, so you've got, you've got German philosophers basically coming along going, well, that's a, that's a, we should overcome that. We should, we should be over, you know, the Uberman, Ubermensch or whatever, like we should, we should go back to strength and honor instead of this weak morality. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think we're I think we're living in the fumes of Christianity. Even by people who say they reject it, they still buy it. There's no basis without God to say that survival of the fittest shouldn't be the law of the land. There's no basis for it. 
So they're again, they're running on the fumes of it. So we're able to kid ourselves about what lurks beneath us. And that gets stripped away really quickly. Um, and we've seen that in the past century with when we have atheistic regimes, like 100 million plus people have died of their own people, not in a war, mm -hmm. at the hands of atheistic regimes. So uh, it's right there. It's beneath the surface. And I don't think, like you're saying, I, I, I agree, we're, we're not better. Uh, we're every bit as barbaric and the potentiality, the potential is there at any moment um, for things to go sideways. And the less influenced we are by Jesus, the, the less covering we have from that barbaric impulse. Hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It is really interesting how our culture has made, um, to use a bunch of buzzwords all at once, like victimhood is now its own hierarchy. And mm -hmm. I do see how it comes from the underlying idea that we should care about people who have less in life. Maybe they were born with something. We need to care about people and help the underdog. And that's turned into, well, who can be the most underdog? Yeah. Yeah. But that, I, there's a, um, again, like there's a power play at work with a lot of this. And um, there are victims and there are like, that's, that's, that is my ethos as a Christian. Like I, I believe people are victimized and, and I've got to live my life in a, in a kingdom way, which means defending these people and righting these wrongs and trying not to make it worse for them, but better. Um, but yeah, that humans will use anything as a stick to attack. Um, so we have to be wary of any, I'm, I'm anti-ideological actually. It may not sound that way, but like, uh, I don't think any human ideology is going to save us. Um, so you're right. Uh, I look at revolutionary France, for instance, just to see where this all kind of goes and where people start attacking each other and, and feeding on each other. Cause there's, if there's, if there's no, Christianity at the bottom of it or no higher transcendent religious system that other than just our own opinions, everybody goes to the guillotine. Like there'd be unending because nobody's righteous. The people on the committee for public safety, you know, the Robespierre himself, he, he winds up on the guillotine. The one that's guillotining everybody, like he's not righteous either. So there's no end to this. Once we, once we go this direction without, without the, lubrication of grace in a culture founded on an idea that there's a transcendent thing to us like there's no there's no there's no bottom to this so that's the difference between the french revolution and a lot of other things that have happened like they they intentionally rejected the idea of god and so it's we're the kings well okay um who you know it's just it's just power it's naked power after that right yeah this is a little off topic, but French Revolution adjacent. There is a memoir. It's I think it's just titled The Memoirs of Madame Tussaud. I don't really know how to say French words. But she was friends with the royalty and she worked as a cast maker, like uh, the hmm. where they no busts, where they would make the faces and things like that. And she was imprisoned 
as the revolution was happening, and she was actually enlisted to make busts of her friends that had been beheaded. Like, here's their head. Now go make a bust of it. Uh Could you imagine that? It is a phenomenal memoir. It's like an hour, hour, maybe two of reading. Wow. It is just the most remarkable story. And she had a lot of people in her family killed. Yeah. I mean, it was, it just was unending. The blood just never stopped. Like reign of terror. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And it's Madame Tussaud. I think is how you say there it. There we go. But I, I've heard of her, but I didn't know what the, I didn't know what the backstory was. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yikes. France. <laughs> I like France. Well, I think I have one more thing that I want to say, which is about your book, Unoffendable. Uh-huh. And I read it as a teenager, and it really helped me to just calm down and not take myself so seriously, huh. which is Good. great. Uh, but I remember it was when me and Jordan were just engaged. We had gotten in a little argument, and what was really happening is that I was really hangry, and (laughs) I thought I'd call your show and say, so you recommend being unoffendable, but how does one do it when I'm hungry? And (laughs) it's so funny. I was so hungry when I was making this call, and I couldn't figure out how your voicemail system worked. And so yeah. I think I left the voicemail like three times because I did not understand. I'm pretty sure in the middle of one, I bonked my head and I probably cussed. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, you told me to just go drink water because I was probably just thirsty. So did I? Yeah, <laughs> you played it on the air. I remember because I was like, I'm famous. I've been on the Brant Hansen show. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, though, like the, the dynamics between our anatomy and <laughs> our, our behavior or the, the, the biological basis for a lot of the things we do is fascinating interplay for me. And science doesn't totally understand that, you know, at the, at the, at the basis level, like what's going on with the brain yeah. and consciousness and decision making and what we're responsible for and what is determined or whatever, like. I find all of that fascinating, but I do know um, it's the hurt, angry, lonely, tired thing. Like that's when we're the most susceptible to not being at our best. And uh, so that's a legit thing. But having the presence of mind where you grow up to the point where you're able to go, you know what? I think I'm hungry. I, we better not talk about this right now because I'm, I'm agitated and it's totally not your fault. Mm-hmm. Occasionally we'll have that kind of discussion with my wife. Like I'm really on edge and it has nothing to do with you. And I'm so sorry, but I just want you to know ahead of time and her with me, that helps so much. That puts your spouse or your friend, like back in the space of on your side, instead of I have to be a, and you hear yourself say something like that and that's charitable and self-aware. So I think that's, I think it's cool. I can think of a couple of times in small groups where I've, floated the idea that maybe there isn't righteous anger Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the number one reaction is what about the sex traffickers we can be mad at them right (laughs) i'm sure you've never heard that one before 
Oh, I do continually. I was just invited on some other podcasts and somebody was like, I'm going to have a naysayer on with you. They're like, that's fine. That's totally cool. I, I don't have a problem with it. But yeah, it, it people will start listing. I, I, there was one talk radio guy that got so mad about, are you telling me I'm not supposed to be upset about this thing here? Like, what? Like, dude, you can be upset about whatever you want to be. I'm talking about um, if, if that's your rationale, a that's not a biblical rash. You didn't bring up any Bible. You, you thought you were Mr. Bible and you just totally punted the Bible. You, it didn't matter in this case. But the other thing is like, you'll never stop being angry. If you think you're supposed to be angry at human traffickers, you'll never stop. Your life will be nothing but anger because there's always something that's going to be going on. Even if we abolished entirely human trafficking, that'd be wonderful something else is going on unjust and horrible in the world and it's easy to find out about it so it, it will never end that is that the quality of life that god asks you like you he wants you to be angry all the time about all injustice and where did you find that in the bible where does this so it's not biblically based it's not practical it doesn't make your life better for sure it not, doesn't make you a peaceful, joyful, loving person to be around. It takes a physical toll and you can't find a single verse to back all that up. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, so I know what's going to happen. They're going to be, it's going to be like, you're telling me I can't get upset about X. Like you can, you totally can't. You're free. You're free to do it. But while you're upset about it, how about if I actually do something about it? Like do something. Yeah. Well, I can't do anything. I can't act unless I'm angry. Well, then that's that's you i don't you know i can't do anything about that that's too bad yeah no a lot of other people can act without being without being angry they can just do the job yeah yeah they can they can defend they can fight if necessary um they can do it absent anger but do it because it's the right thing to do um but if you if you have to be angry about it okay yeah. I always say, I think all of my biggest regrets in life came from when I was mad and acted inappropriately. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's us being immature. Um, it's, I, I keep quoting Dallas Willard on this cause he's so right, but he, he keeps, he said, whatever you do with anger, you can do better without it. So I, I refuse to make that error of category. I refuse to engage in this idea that if I, if you're not angry about it, somehow you're okay with it. Like, no, I want to do something about it. And so I feel like Paul with his resume talking where he's like, you know, it's all a bunch of literal dung, but I did this, that, the other thing. I did this, I did that. I'm like, I'm the head of that. I'm the expert of this. I was shipwrecked. I did this. I did all. He's like, but it's all, it doesn't amount to anything. But if we're going to play this game, we'll do that. So that's what I like to do with people who are, well, I'm mad about this issue. Okay, cool. I'm not. How could you not be mad? Well, I do stuff. And I, I'll be happy to, let's, let's compare resumes. You're not mad enough about racism. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm not. But we want to talk about what we've actually done about it. Uh, let's let's unfurl the resumes. Let's see. It'll be entertaining to me. Yeah. How much have you given? How much have you done? Where have you lived? What have you done? Like, I'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. So I guess 
it's only counts if you're angry or your anger counts more than actually doing something. I don't know. Yeah. I think people just like to feel something like yes. feelings yeah. equal action a lot of times. Well, remember, it's righteous anger. So by by virtue of being righteously angry, you're righteous. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can pat yourself on the back for being righteously angry. It's a righteous thing. So I'm righteous. I'm a good person. And anybody who says that that's not good, man, that's going after the jugular. Like, wait a second. This is, I've based my life on this righteous anger. This is why I'm righteous because I'm mad about all these correct issues. Like I'm, I'm mad about all the right stuff, whether it's fundamental Christian background or it's secular, you know, culture, you have to be mad about all the right stuff that defines you. And then for somebody like me come along and go, well, that's actually doesn't make you righteous. Like, um, it's, it's actually self-oriented. You don't want to hear that. So I recognize that. The biggest eye-opener for me was to be unoffendable and to forgive and not stick with the righteous anger. I feel like I should reread your book. I've been slipping more into it lately. <laughs> but the idea that, that nothing has ever happened to us that hasn't happened to God, like people have not reacted to us in a way that they haven't reacted to God, but on a worse scale. And then he went and died on the cross for it and said, right. God, forgive them. <sighs> right. So that's the basis for all of it. Like, yeah, this is wrong, but I'm wrong. And God forgave me and it told me I have to forgive other people. I don't have a choice or I won't be forgiven. Like that's, this is critical. And there was once again, like a week ago, somebody was on Twitter saying someone had about how righteous their anger is and they're a therapist or something and how we need to be angry. And somebody said, Hey, have, but have you read Brant's book? And this person's a Christian, I guess. And the response was, Oh, I've heard about it, but I just can't respect any point of view that ignores basically what ignores what Paul wrote when he said in your anger, do not sin that tells us that we should be angry and we should like, like literally the rest of the verse, man, struggle with that a little bit, but they, it, you just can't even have that discussion most of the time because it's so bizarre. The idea that you would put off your own anger, that you would deny yourself to that level that on, you would get angry, but then you would realize you have to get rid of it because your own status before God, that's just, uh, that's some serious stuff. That's that's self-denial. Uh, to pick up your own cross every day. Like that's just that's hard to take. Um well, I am thinking probably should wrap up so you could get on with your day. Um, but I always ask four questions of all of the guests at the end. Okay, cool. But before yeah. I do that, where can people find you? Um, well, I have a website, brandhanson.com and I don't use it very well, but it does have the podcast on there and my email newsletter and some other stuff. And it just got redesigned with very bright colors. And so hopefully you'll enjoy that interface. How many, um, emails do you get a day? I don't actually know. Um, not not as many as you would think, but they're all kind of overwhelming. Maybe twenty. Oh yeah. 
So it's not like I'm getting thousand or something, but I will say between that and social media, I feel like I need to get back to every single person who reacts. Like yesterday on the, I put up a picture of mugs I was giving away. There's 15 or 1600 comments. Dang. I went through yesterday and spent a long time responding, liking stuff. And I only, I got like 600 comments through, but I just want people to know, I read your comment. That's funny. I appreciate that. Like the thing you said, I can't, I can't stand the idea that it's not going to be reacted to or read. Can't stand that. So it, that is overwhelming. And I do feel that. And the emails a lot of times are very involved and detailed. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to, I want to respect that. So I can't have a Messiah complex about it. That would be ridiculous. Where all, I have to solve everybody's problems. I know that, but I at least want to affirm the fact that I'm honored that you even wrote me, you know? So that's, that's the struggle. And it, it's, it's actually, it actually weighs on me a lot, even though I'm sure a lot of people have it a lot worse. Do you get lots of internet people like me trying to talk to you? Yeah, I would say so. Um, but again, I'm honored. Most of them I turned down. I don't know what it was about your email. I was just like, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Um, but a lot of times I just don't have time. Oh, you were willing to wait too. I was able to go, hey, let me, let me get my book manuscript done because that was just too much. Yeah. And, I, and uh, so that's what happened there. And you were so kind about it. And so, yeah, I can't, I can't do everything. And I know that. Ah, the burden of being famous. <laughs> yeah. That's just it. I, you know, I don't view it that yeah. way. I literally view it like friendship. So that's why it, that's why it is a burden. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be a burden if I didn't want that to be what it actually, like, we, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. My final questions. Um, do you prefer the office or parks and rec? I will say something that could get me in a lot of trouble. Perfect. I prefer neither of those. Unless you're talking about the British office, which I think is next level brilliant. Now, I like British humor. It is very foul, not in ways that trip me up. Like there's no uh, sexuality, like being acted out or anything like that. Like, like sorry about that stuff dinging um so but th th there's yeah it's but i think it's so genius and the american version to me is got some moments but it's not at that level so sorry about that <laughs> that's okay a couple people have said that i have tried to watch it and <laughs> number one i always have to turn on the subtitles because i simply cannot understand them that's the problem with with your uh, monty python things you probably get mentally tired subtracting for the accents and everything trying to figure out what's going on but you do become a nerd to it over time <laughs> like i can watch a british show now and i don't even realize there's an accent it just doesn't I've, hmm. it's, we just watched so much british tv so many dickens miniseries or whatever it's just i don't it doesn't even ring a bell huh. so yeah okay i guess it takes practice yes it does do you think Genesis 1 through 11 is history or legend? Oh, it's history. But it's, but we got to understand to whom it's written and why. And it's absolute history. 
but it's a common here's the thing like people don't have space for this it's a commentary on other middle eastern or mesopotamian religions and it like it, it is very directly about that in genesis 1 for instance and it's temple language it's about god and man together and like there's all of this stuff that's going on we miss it because we're not ancient people so um the construct like the the construction of the world and everything in it and it's all good that's all a commentary on the other ways that things were presented to be created which is all violence and destruction and incest and all these horrible things like that's how the world came about hardly not according to genesis god did this he he started it it was him and he spoke and he said very deliberately this is not random chance it's not from violence he said i want this and it was good and this and it's good and then he crowns it with this achievement of mankind and says that's very good varies in there like all of this stuff the tower of babel accounts all that sort of stuff there's it's showing us what's going on behind the scenes um and and the original direction for this creation to be this temple and God's kingdom um, and how we're supposed to expand it. So I, I just think, I just think it has to be read like that. It's bizarre to, that we read it other ways. Like if we don't take that into account, we don't understand what's really going on. And that's to our own detriment. We don't see how good God is and what he's really doing. Um, do you think that there are aliens? Um, I don't know. That's my short answer. I suspect there's not is a longer answer. And I would love to talk about that at length sometime. You probably, if you've listened to the podcast, you probably caught that podcast I did about alien life. Right. And mm -hmm. like, so in a sense, I believe in extraterrestrial intelligence because I believe in the unseen realm of, of spiritual beings. And I think they manifest themselves in certain ways that are very tricky. Um, and humans have dealt with that since time immemorial. Uh, pre the, the enemy presenting himself, uh, these spiritual beings that use their free will like we have against God and that they want our destruction. And I think, I think there's ample reason to believe that they're involved in a lot of the phenomena that we consider from other planets. Also, the, the very unique nature of Earth, I think, is worth talking about mathematically. Like, the sustained life like we have it um, is not necessarily, just the fact that we have all of these galaxies doesn't necessarily mathematically mean that life is probable. I think that's worth talking about. Enrico Fermi's paradox, I think, is worth talking about. Like, why aren't they here? That's a longer discussion. But so, but I'm open on it. It wouldn't cause me a crisis of faith or anything. I, in fact, I think it was super cool. But... If there is life elsewhere, that's cool, but I, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, could be wrong. If I am, awesome. I just hope, like I was musing about the other day, I just hope when they come to us and they give us technology and they think they're bequeathing us something wonderful, that it's actually not technology we already have. Because that'll be awkward for everybody. <laughs> it's like we have this thing. It's a cassette that records 
television shows, oh. a video cassette recorder. We give it to you, Earthlings, as our gift, and we have to act like, hey. Woo, thank hey, you. You guys are great. <laughs> that would be really funny. Yeah. I want to do stand-up comedy, actually, more, and that's going to be part of it. I, I think that's a good joke. Yeah. So, Have you done stand-up before? Just a little bit. And um, I want it. I actually think I would enjoy that a lot because instead of the grind of having to come up with content every day, you could just come up with that and do it over and over and over and get better at it. That to me has a lot of appeal mm -hmm. instead of coming up with all this stuff every day to try to fill our radio show and make it a, hopefully make it a blessing. But that's just, that's hard. Yeah. So, How much time do you spend every day coming up with content? Three hours. Oh my. Yep. That's a long time. Concept. And then that's not counting when I'm just reading things and taking notes on stuff like, hey, that'd be good for tomorrow or something. That's just intent sitting down at the computer going, okay, 7.30 a.m. I'm going to start doing the content that we can record at 10.30. Hmm. And it's, it's hard to come up with new stuff. So, Do you record every day or do you do a couple big lump sections? Um, we do several days a week and um, then it's malleable. Like if I have to go somewhere, Sherry's got something going on, we'll do extra days, you know, to try to move it around. But that's the thing about our show is when it plugs in on different radio stations, it'll be an afternoon show here and a morning show there. So it's, we have to record it in advance. So we're recorded a day in advance generally. So Sunday we record Monday's show. Mm. If something breaks big news wise, I'll be in here at whatever AM in the dark making sure I'm talking about it so that we don't miss anything relevant, but, but yeah. Um, my final question is who or what inspires you to be your best self? Oh gosh, that's a real good question. Um, my wife, obviously she's, she's not a demanding person, but she's a, engaged person i mean we're, we have an intense marriage and i mean that in a good way like we're not mailing it in any day like there's 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 intensity and, and intention there um dallas willard again I, I, this last year i've just been soaking up his teaching on podcasts and uh his writing and i, I think he has so much to say about who jesus is it's so wonderful and helps me reframe everything. So I would say those two influences are really big for me right now. So, and Lovely. my dog, she brings out the best. She's good. Yeah. Good dog. What's your favorite animal? Um, Cozy's my favorite animal right now, my dog. <laughs> but there are, right outside this window, we have a, there's a little pond and some otters moved in. We've never had otters in this area. Like we're worried about gators and stuff. <laughs> and they're the cutest things. We got there flipping around and popping up their heads. And I'd have to put them way up on the list. They're pretty darn cute. They're pretty darn cute and fun loving and just like having a great time in there. It's hard to be mad and watch otters. <laughs> you know, hard to be frustrated. So. Well, that wraps up the podcast. Thank you for scheduling me into your crazy life 
you're welcome and you're awesome you did a great job you're Thank a you. very good interviewer and i loved meeting jordan and seriously if you guys ever want to warm up come down here and we'll take you out to dinner or whatever we'd love to meet you i'd love so. to i hear florida's pretty cool it's it's kind of incredible and every morning i wake up and i'm like thank you <laughs> being from illinois on a flat windy plain where it's just wind and cold and ice like this is i i will never stop being grateful for this yeah so, what town do you live in jupiter oh never heard Isn't of it awesome? it's an awesome look it up look it up google it for images okay you'll be like that's a nice place it is fancy we have our own lighthouse and lots of beautiful beaches and crystal blue water we're like 30 miles from the bahamas like it's wow. that beautiful or 50 i can't remember what it is we're close real close wow so, that's awesome yeah and my favorite baseball team has their spring training right here nice in our neighborhood the Cardinals. Yeah. So do you go watch them a lot? I just did a couple of days ago. We went and saw them play the Nationals, and that was great. And, um, yeah, as I, a little kid me would not believe that I get to do this. Like, I'm so thankful. Yeah. Sunshine and baseball and Cardinals and statistics. And <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Yep. She's not Amanda, Abigail. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I'll talk to you later. I'll let you know when this comes out. Absolutely. Let me know. That's great. God bless you. You too. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to see it grow, please share with a friend. I do not want to rely on the whims of social media to advertise. And we all know that being texted a link to a podcast makes you much more likely to click on it anyway. I'd also love to hear from you. So shoot me an email at peakcuriositypod at gmail.com. And as always, you can find links to the things we talked about in the show notes. I'll talk to you next week.